0: You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, you indeed are love itself, and you are love incarnate, made known to us in the person of Jesus. We thank you for the Bible, we thank you for scripture that bears witness to Jesus from beginning to end. And we pray now that you would illumine the reading and preaching of your word so that we would not be like those who look in the mirror and forget the reflection, but that we would respond to your word with our whole lives, with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning again. Um, I'm Corey. I'm the senior pastor here at 3rd, and I know there's a lot of you visiting today. Hello, whole Maddox clan. We'll get to a little Novian in just a second, Um, and I know that a lot of you are here just celebrating our students and those who have joined today. Um, So I know that there's a lot of you visiting, and so we are actually today finishing up. um, It's the 11th of uh, the sermons that we've done on the book of Ecclesiastes, and so you're stepping into kind of a long journey that we've been on together. So let me just kind of bring you up to speed a little bit. Um, this is one of the three wisdom books in the Old Testament, and we, what we've discovered is that these ancient books that were written thousands of years ago have a lot of shockingly relevant wisdom for our modern lives today, and particularly this book of Ecclesiastes in which the whole thing is trying to teach us what does it mean to be human. We live in a world that is really complicated, perplexing, baffling, sometimes painful, disappointing. So what does it mean to live a good life as a human being, and a world as baffling and broken as the one that we live in? That's the question that we've been asking um, throughout this series. So today, we get to the very end, guys. This is like everything that we've been moving towards, like maybe we finally get the punchline. We'll see. Um, And so in this last section, these last verses, um, we're looking today at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 8 through 14, Um, we actually finally return to the voice of the narrator, the narrator was the first voice we heard in chapter one, verse one. And then we heard the voice of the teacher, Kohelet, throughout the book. And then these last few verses, we go back to the narrator who is summing up and surveying everything that the teacher has said, okay? So let's read together. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses eight through 14. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my child, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study wearies the body amen to that, right, students? Um, now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Ready? Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Be so there was once a man named Victor Frankl, And Viktor Frankl was taken, along with his whole family, into the concentration camps by the Nazis during World War II. He was in the camps for a long time, and nearly everyone in his family were killed. His mother, his father, his brother, his wife, they all died. Actually, only he and his sister survived. Viktor Frankl uh, professionally happened to be a psychotherapist. And so even in all of his years in these death camps, these concentration camps, he couldn't ever really take off his psychotherapist hat. And so he continued to observe, he continued to research. And the question that he was asking is this. What he noticed is that there were certain people who were in the concentration camps who despite everything that happened, despite all the suffering, all the terror, somehow had this inner resilience, had this deep strength that was able to hold up and stand strong and stand firm, that they were able to never lose hope despite everything that happened to them. That was one group of people that he noticed. On the other hand, he noticed there was a whole different group of people in the concentration camps who long before they were physically killed had already died, had died of heart, had died their hope, had died internally, everything within them was just lost and they crumpled away long before they were killed. And so as a trained psychotherapist, Viktor Frankl began to ask himself, what is it about this? How do some human beings, how are some human beings able to have such inner ballast, inner strength, inner resilience, despite whatever suffering comes, even death itself, while other human beings do not have what it takes to endure great pain and suffering. He began to ask this question. And what he came to conclude is, is that some human beings have a deep sense of meaning and a deep sense of purpose that is so strong and so impervious that is able to endure no matter what suffering comes He wrote about this in a very influential book that became one of the most important books in existential psychology, and it's called uh, *Man's Search for Meaning*. Man's Search for Meaning. Anybody, anybody in here read it? It's some of you have. It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Um, And actually, Frankl developed an entire school of therapy called, get this, logotherapy. And you might. No, logos, that comes from the Greek word, which means word or meaning or purpose or telos. And so what Frankl would do is he would would sit down with you in therapy and he would say, what is your life's deepest purpose? What are you living for? What makes you get up in the morning? What keeps you going through the day? Everybody has a deep meaning and purpose that drives their life. Most of the time, we don't even know what it is. Most of the time it's implicit, but it's always there. You all have something that you are living for. The problem is, is that for most of us, our deep purpose in life, the meaning that keeps us going, are things like being comfortable and being happy and having a nice family and having a successful career. And you might say, "Well, what's wrong with those things?" Well, here's what's wrong with it: because as he found, in the face of terrible suffering, those things are inadequate. They don't stand up to the test. They don't stand up to reality. You need a purpose, y'all. You need a purpose for your life that is so deep and so strong and so resilient and so untouchable and so indestructible that nothing can touch it, even the worst suffering, even death itself. So what about you? Do you have that? What's your purpose? What gets you up in the morning? What's, What's the meaning of your life? Do you have a purpose that is durable enough to hold strong, even In a death camp? Well, uh, our teacher Kohelet would have loved that question because from the start in this book, he has been on a quest for meaning, the search for meaning. In the very beginning, in chapter one, verse three, he said, What does a person gain from all their labors in the sun? In other words, what's the point? What's the point of my life? What's the point of all this labor? And he has enacted this massive experiment with tremendous resources at his disposal to test out all the different things that human beings attempt to find their meaning and purpose in. He's basically like sampled them to see if any of these things can actually deliver the meaning that we need. For those of you who've been around the last few months, do any of you remember what are some of the things that our teacher tested out? Do you remember, class? Pleasure, Pleasure, yes. Work, wealth, wisdom, uh, relationships, beauty, art, sex, family, ambition, power, success. Basically, he's like sampled out every one of these things to say, okay, maybe this will give me the purpose and the meaning that I need for my life. But in every case, what has he found they lead to? You? Do you remember the word? What did they lead to? Hebel. Hebel. Gosh, y'all have been listening. That makes me so happy. You have no idea how happy that makes me. Hebel, which means, it's a Hebrew word for smoke, vapor, meaninglessness. If you try to live for any of these things, he said, it just ends up like smoke between your fingers. Why? Because life is cruel and death is unstoppable and injustice is rampant. And so many things happen in the world that you can't build your life on these things because in the end, it will leave nothing but smoke between your fingers. At times his words have felt really harsh. I know that some of you have winced about them at times. Um, He's he's been very brutal about how disappointing and painful life can be. But, you know, I hope that you've seen that he hasn't been doing this to make you sad and depressed, although some of you have been sad and depressed. Um, But he's been doing it to help you. He says uh, in this section, verse 11, the words of the wise, that is the words of the teacher, are like goads. They are like nails firmly fixed. And they are given by one shepherd. Do you know, anybody know what a goat is? Any shepherds in the room? Any shepherds? No, <laughs> that would be amazing if there were. But a, a, a goad, a goat is a, um, I actually once like lived next door to a shepherd, no, no joke, in Wales. And um, so he had one of these. It was a, a goad and it's a long stick with a pointy end, sometimes a nail at the end. And what a shepherd does is he uses it to push the sheep along. Now, no shepherd would just poke his sheep for fun, that would be a wicked shepherd. So what a good shepherd does is he uses the goad, and as painful as it is sometimes, to keep the sheep going in the right direction so they don't veer off to the cliffs, so they don't veer off to the wolves. So he keeps them going in the right direction. That's the point of a good shepherd. And that's what he says Kohilak's purpose has been all along. He's been as direct and honest and blunt as he has been, not to cause pain, but, but, but to, to tell us what's true to keep us going in the right direction so we don't wander off and try to build your life on stupid stuff like money and power and sex and relations. he's saying, he's saying you can't build your life on these things because in the end, they lead to ruin. And this is what Frankl has been saying, what he said in his psychotherapy. He said, almost everything we put at the center of our lives and find meaning in is not adequate to hold up to the brutality of human life. It's just not strong enough to hold. So for example, I know a lot of us think that living for your family or for your kids is a big enough purpose for your life. Really? Really? Do you know that studies show that the people who hurt their kids the most are not parents who hate their kids, but parents who center their entire lives around their kids? Why would that be? Because kids are humans. They can't deliver the meaning that parents desperately need, right? That's cruel to a child. Or, or, or think about people who make work or success their meaning in life. Do you know all these stories about athletes and these like movie stars, who like, you know, they retire with millions of dollars and you know, gazillions of Instagram followers and, and yet when they're not in that place anymore, they just fall into addiction and depression, why? Because at the center of their work was their popularity and their success and their reputation and when it's not there anymore, they're left with nothing. And so this has been his purpose throughout this book is he's saying, whatever you give your life to, your family, your work, your happiness, your comfort, some cause in the world, all of it comes down to the same thing is that you are are ordering your life around a finite reference point that in the end turns to smoke, dust. This is not strong enough to hold up the purpose of your life. So that leads to the big question, what is the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? (laughs) Um, You know, Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher said, if you wanna know what to do with your life, you need to know why you're here. The purpose of your life undergirds everything else. You see my watch here? Is this a good watch? Um, Well, yesterday I tried to hammer a nail with it and it didn't work at all. Such a bad watch. Well, that's silly, of course, because the purpose of a watch is not to hammer a nail. The purpose of a watch is to tell time. And the only way that you know whether or not this is a good watch is whether you know what it was made for. It was not made to hammer a nail. It was made to tell time. And in the same way, you will never know what it means for you to live a good life unless you know what is a human for. That is the only way you'll ever be able to evaluate whether you've lived a good life or not if you know what you are for. So what are you for? What's your why? What's your purpose? Why are you here? Why are you on this planet? Well, Koala says it at the very end, okay? Y'all ready for this? Verse 13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commands for this is the whole duty of mankind. And you might be thinking, that's so disappointing, you know? (laughs) You would have thought he'd something like a little bit more exciting after all this nonsense, right? Well, actually, um, one of the great theologians of our time, um, Bono, um, says the same thing. He says, Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books. It's a book about a character who wants to find out why he's alive, why he was created. He tries knowledge. He tries wealth. He tries experience. You've heard at the end of the book to find out why. And it says, remember your creator. In a way, it's such a letdown. And yet, it isn't. It isn't. This is actually the perfect ending to this book. Why? Well, first, he says, fear God. What does that mean? Well, at first glance, that doesn't sound that great. Are you supposed to be afraid of God? I mean, you guys just took confirmation. Did Rick tell you that? Probably not. Because you're not. You're not supposed to be afraid of God. You're not, God is not a monster who's going to get you in the end. we are not supposed to be afraid of God like that. But to fear God is something that any Israelite reading this would have immediately understood because the phrase, the fear of the Lord, is mentioned over 130 times in the Old Testament, and it's essentially shorthand for what it means to be a believer in the God of Israel. I love um, the definition of Charles Bridges, who was a 19th century theologian. He defines it as affectionate reverence. Affectionate reverence. To fear God means to be in awe of the glory and the greatness and the power and the infinite wisdom of God, and yet at the same time, to have this deep affection with God because you are aware of God's great love and God's great mercy for you. Uh, Psalm 25, 14 says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. So fearing God is is about relationship with this great God. And it's a relationship of both awe and wonder and love and trust and affection. Kids, I don't know um, if any of you, I know many of you have read um, the Narnia series from C.S. Lewis, and, and I think that one of the great illustrations of fearing God is in this character of Aslan. There's a reason why C.S. Lewis chose a figure of a lion to depict the person of Jesus Christ, but, you know, and as Mr. Beaver once said about him, he's not safe, but he's very good. And if you picture, you know, the children with him, like especially Susan and Lucy, you know, when they're with Aslan, they they're, they're in awe, they tremble, maybe they're a little bit afraid, and yet when they're with him, they know they are loved. They know they're safe with him. And this is a picture of what it means to fear the Lord. So much of this book has been about how hard it is to be a human being, right? Again and again, Kohelet has pointed out how frail and finite and limited we are as human beings. Y'all, so many things happen to you that you did not expect, So many things happen to you that you don't understand. You expected life to be fair. It's not. You expected life to be just. It isn't. You expected your plans and your dreams to work out. You expected that little script in your imagination about how your life should go to work out the way you wanted it to. It won't. You know what they say in AA? Expectations are premeditated resentments. And so much of our resentment and anger and anxiety and fear is rooted in this deep disappointment that I have not gotten the life that I thought I deserved. And in response to this, Kohelet is inviting us into a posture of fear, of affectionate reverence to fear God, surrender to God, to see this God is infinitely bigger than I am infinitely wiser than I am and will allow certain things to happen to me and to the world that I just cannot in my finitude ever understand. And it means to stop living as if you know what's best for your life and to start living and surrender trust to the God who loves you. It doesn't mean that you can't ever be sad or mad or disappointed or angry. I mean, he's been that way the whole book. He one time said he hated life. Sometimes you just hate life. But to fear God means you never, even with the whole breath of human emotions, of pain and sorrow and despair, you never stop holding on to the goodness of God, holding on to your faith in his power and love. And that when even things feel terribly out of control, you can trust, as verse 14 says, that one day God will bring everything into judgment, which simply means God will one day set things right. That's his job, not yours. So you can rest and trust. It means knowing your place. God is God, I am not. That's the first thing he says, what it means to be human, to live in surrendered trust to the God who loves you. He also says to fear God and to keep his commands. Now, again, any Israelite would, reading this would know immediately what this means. He's referencing um, this ancient Deuteronomic command that's called, uh, Percy Strickland, what's it called? Shema, thank you, my friend. Old Testament scholar back there. Uh, Deuteronomy um, chapter six, verse four and five, it's actually the first word of that verse in Hebrew, Shema, hear, O Israel. In fact, Jesus himself was once asked, okay, friend, how do you sum up the entire law of the Torah? And what did Jesus say? He said this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so in summing up the entire law of God, Jesus says this is what it's all about. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love God with everything you are, the controlling center of your life. I love the message translation. Love him with all that's in you. Love him with all you've Got to love him with everything you have, and then for that love that is up in your heart from God, you pour it out to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, to sum it all up, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, after everything he said, after this whole big search, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of human existence? What is the whole summation of the duty of man? Well, here it is, to fear the Lord, which means to live with affectionate reverence toward the God who loves you and to do everything in your whole life for the sake of love, loving God and loving your neighbor. So I'm actually gonna sum it up here as clear as I know how. I know it's, I know it's, it's kind of a daring thing to tell the meaning of life to a couple hundred people, but this is my job, okay? So <laughs> here's, what it's, here's what I'm gonna propose to you, that according to Ecclesiastes, here's the meaning of life. The meaning of life, is to live in humble, trusting dependence on the God who loves you and to love God and to love your neighbor with everything you've got. That's the purpose of your life. You could say to love and be loved, to live knowing that you're loved by the God of the universe and to in turn love him back and to love your neighbor. Here's why this is so beautiful. You can do this no matter what. Can you do this? In a death camp? Yes, you can. Can you do this in the West End of Richmond, in Regency Mall? Yes, you can. Can you do this in a pandemic? Yes, you can. Can you do this in high school? Yes, you can. You can do this when you're young. You can do this when you're old. You can do this when you're poor. You can do this when you're rich. You can do this when you're sad. You can do this when you're glad. You can do this in a box. You can do this with a fox. You can do this there. You can do this anywhere, right? This, this, is, this, is, this is the whole purpose of humanity that you can literally do in whatever circumstance you might find yourself in. Y'all, this has been a long struggle for me to learn. Um, I have gotten the meaning of life wrong many, many times. One of my great struggles is to define myself by my work and by my success and by the approval of other people. And guess what happens when I do that? Well, when it's going well, I feel great. I feel really good about myself. But when it isn't going well, I feel really discouraged, often insecure, and sometimes even teeter on the brink of meaninglessness. And then, guess what I do? I just work harder to try to demand from my work the deep meaning and satisfaction that it was never meant to give. But it's taken me a long time and a lot of pain to realize that this actually is the meaning of my life. And that when I live this way, that it puts my work in its proper place. If things are going well, I can do my work, not for myself, not to get approval, but for the love of God, to bring him glory, to love him, to love my neighbor. And when things are going badly, guess what I can do? I can do it for God, I can do it for my neighbor, I can learn dependence, trust, I can learn patience, I can learn long-suffering, I can submit to him so that my character would be formed to become more like Jesus. No matter what happens, no matter what storm hits, no matter what pitfall comes, when this is your meaning in life, to be loved and to love, then every single situation in life, no matter how good, no matter how bad, no matter how high, no matter how low, is an opportunity to fulfill the purpose of your existence. Every day you can wake up. be human. I talked about Anne Bonsack last week, my friend who died when she was 100. I visited her two weeks before she died. Two weeks before she died, she was this little old lady in a bed who couldn't get out of bed. She was completely constrained within an eight by 10 room, couldn't leave. And a cynic would say, does this woman anymore have a meaning for her existence? No, she can't contribute meaningfully to the world. But guess what? She never lost the meaning of her life, right up to the very end. She loved every person who came into that room. She loved every nurse. She loved every aide. She spent the time in her bed, singing old hymns, praising her God. Her last words were, come Lord Jesus, right up to her very last breath, Anne Bonsack fulfilling the purpose of human existence in an eight by 10 room. If She can do it. Whatever circumstance you're in tomorrow, you can do it too. So let me say this as I close. No human has ever really done this fully, except for one, the second Adam, the second man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came among us. Have you ever thought about this? He came. Jesus came for us, friends, not just to save us, but to restore us, to teach us, to show us what it means to be human. We're about to celebrate when God came into the world in a man, the person of Jesus, Why did he come? Yes, to live. Yes, to die. Yes, to rise. But also to fulfill for us what it fully means to be human again. Hans Kung, the great Catholic theologian, was once asked, why are you a Christian? Do you know what he said? To become fully human Because only with Jesus, only united to Jesus, only baptized into him, raised with him, united with him through his spirit, can we begin to learn what it means to be human again. We can stop living for ourselves. We can stop living for idols. We can stop living for meaningless stuff that leaves us with dust. And we can start living for the God who made us. We can be filled with the love of God so that we can love him and we can love others with everything that we've got so that we can be a part of what God is doing as he renews all things. So here we come to the end of Ecclesiastes. And the question is asked at the end, do you have a meaning in your life that is strong enough to hold even in a death camp? Do you have a meaning in your life that strong? This book has invited us to come out of denial, to resist stupid, simplistic, sentimental Hallmark card answers about life which never work, and to face up to the brutality of what it actually means to be human. This book has taught us how to be honest with ourselves and with others. And yet, here's the good news. No matter how hard, no matter how painful, no matter how inexplicable life gets, our lives can always retain their God-saturated purpose no matter what. You are loved by God. You're claimed by him forever in Jesus Christ. And now he calls you to do what you were made to do with everything you've got, to love him, to love your neighbor, to be a part of his great work of renewal in the world. So you wanna know what it means to be human? The good shepherd is calling. Come follow me, he says, and me you find life. Let's, Let's pray together. We do praise you, oh God that you have come among us, not just to save us from sin and death and hell, but to show us what it means to be human. We are all so confused. We all get the meaning of life wrong in so many ways. I sure have. And yet Jesus has come among us, not just to save us, but to unite himself with us in his risen life so that we can become fully human too. So that we can no longer live for ourselves and our own selfish desires. And we can instead be God-oriented, neighbor-oriented people, loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving our neighbors as ourselves. We don't have the power to do it. We need your spirit. Renew us yet again that we might be what we were made to be. In Jesus' name, amen.